175th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, your host, Daryl D. Lane. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in, whether it be via Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, any other podcasting platform or app you are listening to me by. Going to have a great show for you all today. Going to have Ross Jackson on the show. Uh, host of the Locked On Saints podcast, that a really good interview with uh, Ross, a really good conversation. Uh, just to give a little spoiler alert, he thinks Drew Brees is better than Peyton Manning all time in terms of the GOAT discussion, but really enjoyed having Ross on. Uh, a lot of insight, really fun having him on. We hit on the Drew Brees comments that were made uh, about a month ago in terms of the National Anthem and his grandfather's result. We also hit on a little bit of Drew Brees' hierarchy in the NFL all time. Uh, we also hit on the fact that with Taysom Hill and now his kind of development and how maybe he could be the future. With that is Jameis Winston as well. So so we touched on a lot of uh, good stuff, a lot of fun and interesting topics. And I know you guys will all enjoy that. But really quickly, here's what I want to do. So, and by the way, I do want to apologize for not having uh, the Monday podcast. But we're going to have the Wednesday one, right? For this uh, for this week. Just taking a little bit of a break. But I, I ran, I had the... One of the most interesting nights. Uh, I want to explain that. So, and this has nothing to do with sports, by the way. But uh, just, just interesting, funny. Like, let, let, let all the guys and gals out there know what was going on. So, I, I have my friend over. Uh, we have a couple of drinks. Uh, this individual's been on the podcast a couple of times. I'm, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want him to be embarrassed. But he, he, he probably had uh, a little bit too much to drink. So. All of you out there know when uh, you're with a friend and they have too much to drink, you become team the leader, uh, team mom or team dad, right, <laughs> for the night. So all the immature behavior that alcohol can induce, you're having to watch and make sure, oh, is this person safe? Does this person do what they're supposed to do? So that was my role. And we end up leaving my house. And this is Monday, so Monday night. Uh, you don't expect much to happen. So we end up going to uh, McDonald's, which is probably about a five to six minute walk away from my house. And he ends up apologizing to the manager. My friend ends up apologizing to the manager, uh, which was which was really funny. Because uh, we thought, because another one of our friends works there, so we thought we might get some free stuff at McDonald's. We might get the hookup at McDonald's. Turns out our friend, he wasn't there. So we end the front I'm with. Then I'm like, let's go to Jim's Steakhouse. Because Jim Steakhouse, for those of you who don't know, it's like a like a after-hours food place. has a lot of good food. So we walk there. And this is a little bit further from McDonald's than my house. So this is, might be like a 15 to 20-minute walk. But I'm like, we're already out. What the heck? I want food. I want a steak. I want a steak sandwich. That's what I want. So I was really determined. Sometimes when I get it in my head, I want something. Like, I will go to no lengths to do it. And I was like, so I'm walking. Now, this man, he's having a heart-to-heart with his uh, lady friend, my friend. He's having a heart-to-heart with his lady friend on the phone. And I'm just walking. Like, I'm leaving him behind. I'm not doing a good job of being uh, the dad, but, uh, right, team dad. I'm not doing a great job because I'm leaving behind. I'm like, man, I need to get some food. I need to get some food. So we end up getting there. And guess what happens? There, 
it's closed. It's closed. And I literally look at him and he's, and it's like, you know, when you see the little puppy and the little puppy's tearing up and, and, and the guy at uh, Jim Steakhouse, he looks at me, he's like, sorry, man, we close it too. And, I, and I'm tearing up and I'm like, my guy, do you know how far I just walked? My guy. I, I was I wasn't even so much as angry as I was just sad, disappointed, deflated, morale at an all-time low. And my other friend, he's gone at this point. I thought he might have been gone. Like, I have completely left him at this point. I have completely left him. Because I just couldn't put up with the obnoxiousness and the childness and the childishness that was going on. So then he comes back, because then I'm walking back the other way, and then we meet again. And during this time we walk back, we walk by a power a party. There's a house party going on. And my friend is in such a state that he's like, Daryl, let's go over to their house. Let's go over to the house and see what's going on. Now, I do know about the house party scene, right? John Carroll uh, has a little bit of the, you know, people, my old roommate, Caleb Leonard, called the Warrensville Crawl. So then we go and uh, everybody's playing flip cup. And of course he goes in and he starts talking to everybody. It was fun. We ended up playing uh, Pong, too. It was actually very interesting. Really nice people. Uh, and I didn't realize that's how it works at bigger schools, uh, that they have parties like that on in the afternoons in the summer. But it was uh, really interesting. And a really interesting, unexpected night in Buffalo, New York that I have never had and I never would expect to have. But that's how I kind of semi-played Team Dad for the night. And I had an interesting night. And then we went back, and I got him home, and I made him get an Uber because he couldn't stay at my house because he was too obnoxious, and uh, Corona's going around. So we cannot have that happen. Well, that was a little interesting, a little off-topic, funny, interesting story. Had nothing to do with sports, but just something I did. Now, like I said, we're going to have Ross Jackson on, host of the Locked On Saints podcast. We're going to have him on in just a little bit. But also, here's what else I want to do as we get to sports. So Cam Newton is signed by the New England Patriots, and... It's always interesting when people's first reaction, people are like, oh my God, this is Bill Belichick's play. Brady versus Belichick continued. Brady versus Cam. How good can the Patriots be now? Are the Patriots the best team in the AFC East now? They have a former MVP as their quarterback. Are they the best team in the AFC? Let alone the AFC East with the Bills, Jets, and Dolphins. Are they the best team in the AFC with the teams like the Chiefs and the Ravens? But here's my biggest takeaway, and it's really interesting. If you go back, let's go back to like 2000 when Tom Brady is drafted. I can remember Eric Mangini and he's talking. And he kind of talks about when Tom Brady comes in as a six-round draft pick. And it, it was really interesting. He was like, we, we didn't know why we kept on the roster, but there was just something about him. Right? There was just something about him. And I believe that he said they something that they carried like three quarterbacks in the beginning or something like that. And when you're around somebody, you know. Like, people always say this. Players know who can play and who cannot play. Like, sometimes media and the fans kind of get it confused. Like, there's these analytics and there's these stats. But when you compete against somebody and you're doing it with them, you're out there with them, you can tell who's dogging it, who's not, who's lazy, who's not, who's good, who's not. It's, it's quite simple. It is quite simple. Played football with some kids that got more recognition than others, others, and I could tell you who was the better player. Like, like quite easily. When you're around somebody every day and you practice with them, you play with them, you know who's good and who's not. Same for coaches. 
You get to see him every day. You know who's good, who's not. You know why they kept Brady? Because they could tell that there was something in him. Then you fast forward to 2001, Brady's second year. Drew Bledsoe gets hurt. Bill Belichick, might, some people might say, why not trade for a quarterback? Why not sign another quarterback? Are you really going to start some six-round, six-round, second-year quarterback named Tom Brady? Who the hell is this guy? He wasn't even a starter at Michigan. Yeah, Bill Belichick started him because Bill Belichick saw something in him. He'd already been around him for about a year. He knew that he could handle the pressure. He knew that he could handle the spotlight. Fast forward that year. Brady isn't the Brady that puts up gaudy stats that we end up knowing, but he's a game manager, doesn't make mistakes, and leads the New England Patriots to a Super Bowl victory against the greatest Sean Turf, St. Louis Rams. When Bill Belichick signs Cam Newton, that is directly saying Jared Stidham can't play. It's an indictment on Jared Stidham in every way, shape, and form. Cam Newton just didn't become available. Cam Newton has been available, right? Cam Newton is, was a former MVP months ago when he was a free agent. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Except that maybe Bill's like, you know what? How about I don't have Jared Stidham be the starter? Because that probably won't go over very well. Or maybe Jared Stidham got into some trouble. And I always said this. Maybe there's something off the field that we don't know. I'm not to cast any aspersions. Any aspersions? Because I don't know. But when you wait this long, like NFL free agency, when Brady and Jameis Winston and all these other guys were getting signed, this was a couple months ago. This is a couple, like, a lot of things have changed. A lot. And the fact that they now bring in Cam, tells me something about Jared Stidham. Tells me something's a little bit off. Tells me that Bill Belichick doesn't trust him. And that is an indictment on Jared Stidham as a quarterback. A huge indictment. I always said this. You can tell the one thing. The one thing that always had me a little off on Josh Rosen when he was coming through as a quarterback prospect a couple years ago is when his coach, Jim Mora, Jim Mora said that he wasn't a good locker room guy. He criticized his character. And I'm like, the one person that is supposed to advocate for you is your coach. If he has negative things to say about your personality, what does that really say about you? You see, because when you're around somebody all the time, you know their personality. You know if they're a jerk. You know if they're an a-hole. You know if they're nice. You know if they can play. You know if you're not. Bill Belichick has seen enough of Jared Stidham to say, I can't win with that guy even though they have a great defense and a great coaching staff. And he's still like, I can't win with that guy. That tells you something. Now, cut him next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. I'm going to have Ross Jackson on the show. Cut him next after the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Okay, swish. Oh, we're back with Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us today, Ross Jackson. He's the host of the Locked on Saints podcast. How you doing, Ross? Hey, doing very well, brother. Thank you very much for having me on. Glad to be here with you today. 
Now, the first question I have to ask you, right? So, in the midst of Corona and kind of uh, kind of the social unrest that's been going on in the country, you have Drew Brees that becomes kind of a firestorm a firestorm for the NFL and the Saints when he uh, makes his comment on the flag and you know how it relates to his grandparents. And then you see both his grandfathers, and you kind of see the reaction about how guys like Malcolm Jenkins felt about it. And I just want to know. What were your thoughts when you initially heard it, and, and what do you kind of think the vibe is around New Orleans about it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you saw the general vibe. I mean, the, the general vibe was very much people not very happy with Drew Brees' comments. Uh, and, and I think that it comes to down to two different things. You saw people that were either upset with his stance on the protest during the anthem, but a lot of people not so much were upset about the specific stance on the protest during the anthem because he mentioned that back in 2013, that wasn't new information. I think that what really uh, a lot of other people latch on to is that look, Drew's become uh, a cornerstone within this community in New Orleans, the type of charity work that he's done, the incredible stuff that he and his family have been a part of, helping to rejuvenate you know, the city, the team, everything that he's done uh, for the community. And because of that, a lot of the community feels very attached to him. And that was an opportunity for him in that moment to really be representative of a community of people that feels like and that I could speak from my own experience have been targeted and have been attacked. And in that way, uh, when he didn't make any type of a specific, you know, address uh, having to do with whether it be racism, injustice, prejudice, brutality, police brutality, any of those things. We didn't specifically address those issues. I think that that's where a lot of people saw some of the real harm come from the statement in that what was missing, right, what was omitted. And so a lot of people reacted to that in that moment. That's really what I saw uh, from a good portion of folks and uh, where I stood on the issue. And, I, you know, I think we've seen him sort of turn around and gather a little bit more education and start to take what's going to be you know, a few steps, right? He's not going to just like walk right back into favor and people aren't going to forget this type of a thing, especially at this time where, you know, these types of comments and, and, and uh, platforms are so important. But, uh, you know, I have seen him sort of take another step into continuing to move in towards the more positive sort of educated place uh, around these issues. But I think that was one of the biggest things that really stood out was just sort of the the, the omission of the issue in its actuality. So do you think maybe, and I guess what you're saying is, the problem necessarily wasn't the answer in itself. If he gives that exact same answer, let's say, but he mentions the other aspects about police brutality and racism in America, and he talks about that, do you think the reaction to what he said is received differently? Yeah, I think it would have been a little bit more mild. I think that people still would have reacted to his statement about the flag because they very, or not necessarily the flag, but the protest taking place during the anthem during the NFL season. I think people still would have had their reaction to that based upon what that protest is actually signifying versus what people have been correlating it to. And so I think that you still very much would have had a little bit of a reaction in that element of it, but the reaction more than likely would not have been as large as this, which became a missed opportunity to really stand on the right side of history in a way. Now, and you mentioned, uh, you know, Drew Brees, he, he retracted his statement uh, about it when when the whole thing happened. And he, I believe him and his wife donated, have donated some, uh, some sum of money. And uh, he, he's come out and talked about how wrong he was. But I guess my question is, when, when a, a lot of it is, he, he's only kind of recanted about what he originally said because of the media backstorm. Do you think that, how, how much of it do you think is that he's genuinely sorry and that, okay, I'm getting raked through the coals right now because of what I said and I have to retract. 
I think that there's a world in which it's both. Uh, I do think that you want the firestorm to stop no matter what, but I also know that the conversation that took place, you know, they had a team meeting, The you know, this happened on a Wednesday, they had a team meeting Thursday that was already scheduled, and I know during that team meeting was a very, very heartfelt conversation with a lot of the black players, a lot of the players that felt affected by his statement and himself. And so I do think that there is always going to be an element of, oh, I'm tired of getting right against the Coles, I need to do the right thing here, while also having a desire to indeed do that right thing. So I do think that it's a little bit of a blend of both. We've seen him and his wife guarantee action. We've seen him now uh, sign his name to a document that included over 14, I think it was 1,400, 14,000, I can't remember, uh, athletes and people of stature to uh, send a notice to Congress about wanting to take away the the qualified immunity clauses in, in punishable treatment. You saw you know, him and his wife, Brittany, are sponsoring uh, sponsoring producers for the Black Hall of Fame event that's coming up in July. So you're seeing him sort of take steps that are a little bit more specifically engaging within communities of color and the black community in particular. And so you see him taking sort of appropriate steps to continue to move forward. But again, I think that's going to take continued action and continued displays of it. And I think that that's where you're really going to see how much of it is desire to actually want to show that he has is now on the right side of this or on the other side of this versus how much of it is just trying to do the bare minimum. We'll see if it's extended and sort of more continued calculated and strategic action moving forward. And I think that that will definitely clear this type of a conversation up. So when this whole first thing happened, I guess my takeaway was that well, whether you think it was right or wrong or you're pro or anti, whatever he said, I, me, I always thought personally the biggest issue was how what he said was being received, whether you think it's right or wrong, how, how it was being received by guys like Malcolm Jenkins, uh, Mike Thomas, uh, in a broader sense, his contemporaries in the sports world and in football and in a more confined, concentrated sense, his teammates, the men in the locker room that he has to play with and rely on how they feel about him because he said that. How do you think that goes over? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough because you don't want to just point to it and say that something is an issue because of the way that it was received versus actually looking at the impetus for that issue or the catalyst for that issue. And so I think it's trickier because you sort of have to have an understanding of what it is that, you know, uh, really spawned the moment itself and what was said in the moment versus just turning and looking at the responses. And all I do think that some of the responses that you might have seen, I think a lot of people would look at them as inflammatory, incendiary, so on and so forth. But I think you'd also uh, feel that same type of commitment to or understanding of the original statements as well. Do you think his comments will have any effect on the Saints season? I think that what is a little bit more likely to me in looking at what they've already sort of, the way that they've already sort of banded out of this, is that it's either going to be one of those things that ends up really causing issues amongst the uh, amongst the locker room, but I think we would have seen that start already. Instead, I think what we've seen so far is this locker room really band together and come together. So no, at this point, I don't think that we're going to see any issues from this once it comes to translating the play out on the field. But, you know, time remains, right? We still need to, you know, these things still remain to be seen depending upon how it works out. And as well as what this sort of dialogue and conversation is going to look like across the NFL as well once the season does restart. 
And so I think that that's going to maybe have a factor into it as well. But at this moment, the way that things are looking so far, it doesn't seem like this is going to have much of a negative effect on the Saints at all. In fact, it might put them in a position to be closer than they were before all of this happened. When you talk about, you know, having a chance for them to be uh, closer together, how good do you think the Saints are going to be this year? Because, you know, they have a lot of talent. You have Breeze, you have Michael Thomas, you have Alvin Kamara. Obviously, Tom Brady's now in the uh, NFC South as well. Uh, how do you think they where, where they stack up relative to the team like the, above the Bucks? Yeah, I think that they stack up pretty well on paper, right? I mean, you can look at the Saints right now, and outside of maybe the defensive interior, you can essentially find a top 10 player at any given position for the most part, or at least amongst different position groups, meaning offensive line, defensive line, as opposed to breaking it down by specific position. So you can see that they have a lot of talent along their roster, and I'll say along the 25, right? 11 on offense, 11 on defense, and then the the three on special teams. And so you look at what are even four on special teams, you want to include the return specialists as well. So they have some really, really good talent in terms of what they stack up on paper. The biggest thing is just going to be how does the abbreviated offseason affect their opportunity and their ability to be able to implement their game plan and translate it out on the field. That's going to be really the big question. Now, we've seen the Saints come out of an abbreviated offseason before and put up over 7,000 total yards. They did that back in 2011 with the holdout out to where we weren't able to start training camp until it was July 25th, I believe, they began. This is fairly close to that, July 28th being the target date for training camp to begin. So we'll see if they're able to replicate the same type of production despite an abbreviated offseason the same way they did back in 2011. They do have the bringing back many, many starters and having improved different positions where they did lose players. So I think that you're going to look for the Saints to just be able to see what they can translate in terms of what they can put on the field and the way that they can execute on the field as opposed to just focusing on the sort of on paper what the roster looks like. Because the roster looks very talented, but now it comes down to execution once the season begins. So I want to ask you where you think Drew Brees is at in his career because the last time we saw him play, uh, it was against the Vikings. To me, he didn't look all that great, and you can make an argument that Taysom Hill looked better when when he when he came in the game. So, and given his age, how do you think you know Sean Payton, the Saints, kind of have that fine line of he's obviously going into the season as a starter, but if there are struggles or if he shows deterioration, that they could. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting thing that we're going to have to watch and see how it works out. The Saints are already working on different ideas in terms of making sure that Drew Brees is able to get some rest. So looking at resting him two days of practice as opposed to just one day of practice over each week to see if maybe that can help to prolong him. It's an interesting thing always because, you know, we always talk about the last time we saw Drew Brees being the Minnesota Vikings game. But throughout the entire month of December, he threw for over 1,100 yards, 15 touchdowns, no interceptions, and completed over 70% of his passes. And so if he could have just prolonged that type of production one more game, then it would have, you know, furthered them a little bit further. And then, you know, you have to worry about can he hold up during a deep playoff run at that point. But I think that if they can find other ways to get creative and find ways to rest him outside of the game situation, then I think that you'll absolutely see that. I don't think that there's a reality to where you see Drew Brees get pulled by any means, because if you're... If, if your options are a future Hall of Fame quarterback or a guy that's completed six passes in his career, I think you're always going to lean on the Hall of Fame quarterback. And so outside of injury, I don't think you really, I don't think I'm really prepared to say that the Saints are going to look to pull uh, Drew Brees if he looks at all, you know, has a bad game or anything like that. I don't think you're going to see anybody get started over him outside of an injury situation. But I think that they're working on other creative ways to find ways to make sure that they can extend his productivity into another deep playoff run. Well, I guess what I would say to that is that, you know, I mean, there was a time where uh, 
Brock Osweiler was starting over Peyton Manning. And obviously, Drew Brees is better than Peyton Manning was at that particular time. But if Drew Brees even shows that level of ineptitude where he, we kind of see, you know, the Max Kellerman theory, he falls off a cliff like that, then do you think there could be discussions about potentially making a switch? Sure, or- yeah. Yeah, I think if you see something that drastic, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially if you have a guy like Taysom Hill and you also have an option like Jameis Winston back there as well to where let's say that something happens week 13, 14, maybe they're more comfortable with, with Jameis Winston in that case because they've had you know finally once training camp actually opens up through the preseason and then at that point 13 to 14 weeks to really work with Jameis Winston and try to get some of those things cleaned up do you lean on Jameis Winston who is a little bit more of a stand in the pocket and deliver type of a passer to where you don't have to really re-engage and change your offense as much as you would for a mobile guy like Taysom Hill would it then make more sense instead to roll with the Jameis Winston? I think those are going to be very interesting questions to ask, but in order to really get there, you're going to have to see a pretty pretty substantial and uh, sort of unrecognizable drop-off in Drew Brees and really an unrecognizable Drew Brees in order to really get to the point where you see that happen. Now, and the thing I've always found interesting, too, about this whole situation is because you can look at the Saints, right? So last year they have Breeze, Bridgewater, Taysom Hill, all three quarterbacks that are very talented. Breeze and Bridgewater are obviously starting caliber quarterbacks. You can make an argument Taysom Hill is. This year they're going to have Breeze, Jason, uh, Jameis Winston, and Taysom Hill. Jameis Winston, another guy that, that is very talented, led the league in passing yards. And you see how Sean Payton is kind of able to manage it. I don't know what it's like and how he's able to manage it and keep everybody happy because you see a situation in New England and then there's all this drama when they have Tom Brady, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, Jacoby Brissett, and then both those two guys get shipped out of town. How do you think Sean Payton is able to calm the ego in the room because you have three guys that all believe that they're really good and, you know, it didn't work out in New England because, you know, there was a little bit of friction and people had to go. How do you think Sean Payton is able to stop that from happening in New Orleans? I think it's really about clear expectations. And Sean Payton's always been this guy, you know, to where he is very good at managing a lot of talent in particular position groups and finding a way to make sure that everybody understands that they serve their own role. It helps when, you know, one of your quarterbacks is also an offensive weapon that gets a lot of attention in both the passing game as well as the running game. It helps when you have a, um, you know, a a quarterback like Teddy Bridgewater who is in the midst of revitalizing his career and you know that he indeed is the, uh, you know, going to be the immediate backup behind Drew Brees, right? So there's a lot of different things like that to where you're going to come across these guys that do have a lot of talent but all have very specific uh, usages within the offense or roles within the offense. So the other part of that that you end up seeing is that potentially in 2020, you see Taysom Hill continuing to hold on to his offensive weapon type role, but then you also have Drew Brees, who's your starter, and then potentially Jameis Winston becomes the guy to win the immediate backup role. Or Jameis Winston, who signed you know just a $1.1 million contract to be in New Orleans in the first place, is simply just there to get better as a quarterback and then contend for the starting spot after Drew Brees is done, whatever that scenario ends up becoming in terms of what arrangement is worked out between all of these guys, that's definitely going to be a big part of what's going to keep everybody kind of balanced and keep everybody feeling like they're getting the attention that they deserve within their offense. And Sean Payton's going to do a very good job at laying it out from the very beginning and holding to it and, you know, accepting new information whenever there needs to be new information and new things considered. But for the most part, making sure that everybody plays the role that they're set to play. Now, Taysom Hill, he's 
considered by most to be the heir apparent for uh, Drew Brees, even though Jameis Winston's second on the depth chart. You can make an argument that Jameis Winston's more talented. Why do you think there's such an infatuation with Sean Payton and Taysom Hill? Like, that is his guy. Sean Payton loves that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he absolutely does. And I think a big part of it has been the type of role he's gotten to have with Taysom Hill. You haven't really seen a guy as versatile in Sean Payton's offense as Taysom Hill since maybe Darren Sproles, perhaps. And so he's just altogether a fun piece that Sean Payton gets the opportunity to move around on the chessboard. And then beyond that, he's also developed that close personal relationship with him in terms of developing him as a quarterback and watching him develop as a quarterback, which is a little bit more on the Pete Carmichael, Joe Lombardi uh, sort of level of responsibility and focus. But even still, Sean Payton's still a very big part of that. So you look at all the things that Taysom Hill has done to earn his spot on this team, his desire is to be a franchise quarterback in the Saints. You know, they look to return that and hopefully give him an opportunity to be able to do that at some point as long as he can prove that he can do that. And he's already started to really to, to improve some of those things. I would imagine that at the beginning of the season that he is maybe considered the quarterback too. And that might shift as they get more comfortable with Jameis and Jameis can show that he can clean up some of those issues that everyone is aware of that you saw at his 30 interceptions even last year at Tampa Bay. But at the moment, Taysom Hill is just simply more familiar with the offense he knows how to call the plays, which in a West Coast, which in a traditional West Coast offense is not easy because you lift every receiver, every route. And in Sean Payton's offense, you're calling kill plays. You're usually calling two plays. So you have to really be able to de- to deliver all of that information quickly, concisely, and clearly. And then also, he's just getting better at getting rid of the ball and pulling the trigger a little bit quicker uh, in terms of what we've seen from him so far. So I think all of those things are improvements and elements that are going to potentially lift him into that quarterback two position a little bit sooner or earlier on in the year. It'll just be interesting to see how they continue to navigate it amongst the two as they get more comfortable with Jameis and get a better look at Taysom, who will still very much hold his offensive role that you've seen over the last couple of years, but probably a little bit less involved in special teams. So for Taysom, do you think if he does eventually become the starter that they're going to run a Lamar Jackson, uh, Tim Tebow, let's run the quarterback 20 times type of offense? Yeah, well, you know, if you ask Jake, or he's the next, you know, Lamar Jackson. Uh, but I, I do think that you're going to see, you know, that, that's one thing that we haven't gotten to see with Sean Payton really at all. Because obviously since Sean Payton has been in New Orleans, so too has been uh, Drew Brees. And so he's very much developed this, you know, pocket passer. Even when he was, you know, the offensive coordinator in New York, they still dealt very much in the pocket passer realm. So that's very much focused so far we haven't really gotten to see Sean Payton really create with a mobile quarterback for the most part outside of the couple of plays here and there that you see with Taysom Hill but uh, I'm interested and I do think that it is going to be you know a little bit more of a an offense that really plays toward Taysom Hill's skill sets they're not going to limit him and tell him you just have to be a pocket passer they're going to let him do a little bit more of the Deshaun Watson Josh Allen type of, you know, move around in the pocket, get outside the pocket, extend plays, improvise with your legs, pick up first downs with your legs if you need to, but also really work on him to develop those quarterback first mentality. You know, it's kind of like that shift that I'm not comparing these two. I want to be very, very clear about that. But uh, it's kind of like that shift that Michael Vick went through when he signed with Philadelphia to where they transitioned him to a throw first quarterback who could still use his legs. I think that's a little bit more the type of process that they want to go through with Taysom Hill. Not that he's going to be Philadelphia Eagles version of Michael Vick, but simply that he's going to be a little bit more comfortable at the quarterback position as a 
thrower and then end up progressing into, you know, utilizing his legs when he has to, as opposed to doing it sort of vice versa and going with the run first type of mentality. Comparing Taysom Hill to Michael Vick or Sean Payton comparing Taysom Hill to Lamar Jackson. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, know, I know. I'm trying to be very, very careful and not compare Taysom Hill to anybody because the fact of the matter is that we just haven't seen enough from him, right? I mean, he's like I said, he's completed six. He's completed six passes in his career. He only completed three last season. The three that he threw that were incomplete, two of them were on fake punts, and one of them was on this wild end around play that didn't work to Jared Hill. I'm sorry, Jared Cook. So even in those cases. You know, they're still not often using him as a traditional throwing quarterback the times they have him throwing passes because, again, he threw a third of his passes last year from a fake punt formation. <laughs> so you still haven't really gotten an opportunity to see him there. But it will be interesting to see what they do if they actually do get the opportunity to build you know, an offense around him. Do they continue to lean on that sort of read option? Do they really dig back into the old books of the Sean Payton offense and really lean on play action as a means of buying time for Jason Hill, play action rollouts, things like that? How do they design this offense around him after seeing several years of a very precise and uh, sort of meticulous pocket passing, quick pass offense with uh, Drew Brees? Where do they go to transition for Taysom Hill? And it's pretty clear and evident, right? Taysom Hill will be the guy when Drew Brees retires. Like, I think I think that that's where you should expect right now. I, I do think that there we can't deny the fact that Jameis Winston has five years of starting experience and is looking to fix himself as a quarterback. We don't know what that means. We don't know what the process will be. What the sort of product of that process is, we'll have to wait and see. But I don't want to write off the fact that. Jameis Winston very well could come in here and figure out some way, maybe the LASIK eye surgery made all the difference, maybe working with Sean Payton, Joe Lombardi, Andy Carmichael makes all the difference, and then all of a sudden he's a more careful quarterback with a better decision-making process, less pressure on him to you know, have to force plays. He has a better run game, a better offensive line in front of him, a better defense on the opposite side. Does all of that somehow help Jameis Winston? win the, the heir apparent role or win that next starting role. We'll have to see. Sean Payton has been very clear. Uh, he did an IG Live interview with Kay Adams over at the NFL page, and he mentioned that Taysom and Jameis know very well that they have competition for the role after Drew Brees, so it'll be interesting to see exactly what that competition looks like. But right now, because of the things that we mentioned earlier in terms of how they're already very comfortable with Taysom Hill, they believe strongly in Taysom Hill, Taysom's already familiar with the system, so on and so forth, I think right now it's safe to say that very likely it'll be Taysom, but don't lose track of Jameis Winston just yet. Now, the really interesting thing about the Saints is they've had the 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 most what the f moments in the postseason by any team I can ever remember. Right, so three oh, years yeah. ago you have you have Minnesota, right, right. You have the uh, and I believe Stephon Diggs it was the touchdown pass. You know, the safety kind of misjudged it. C- crazy play, mm-hmm. you know, right. <laughs> then the next year you have. Uh, the P.I. call against the Rams. Right. Right. And then this year you, you play the Vikings, a team that everybody favored them to beat. And, you know, there's the was it a, a touchdown? Did he get his feet in? A lot of controversy about that. So what was your reaction after every single game? Well, my reactions after the first two games were very different than my reaction of last year's playoff exit. To me, last year's playoff exit straight up the Saints lost that game. I didn't have any question about, you know, I know a lot of people want to reference the Rudolph push-off and things like that. I don't care. That offense was stagnant the entire game. As you mentioned, the best part of that offense was Taysom Hill. (laughs) 
And if the best part of your offense in a playoff game is Taysom Hill, not in a starting quarterback role, but as a you know an offensive weapon sort of Swiss Army knife role, you're not going to win the game. You're not going to win a game. It's very, very simple. If that's your best player, you can't expect to win. And so you look at all that, you look at how bad the offensive line was, particularly along the interior, the uh, the, the head coach and the defensive coordinator of the uh, Minnesota Vikings played a fantastic game moving Everson Griffin and Benel Hunter on the inside to get some athletic pressure up against a very safe, a very a weak Saints interior offensive line that busted up a lot of plays for the Saints. They could not get that offense rolling at all, and the defense didn't really do much to help either. And they, they tried. I mean, they held up, but you know, then you had Marshall Lattimore get hurt. You had another corner get hurt. You're already without Eli Apple. So you have a lot that was going on with this team, and they just straight up lost that game. So my attitude after the third, after this third and most recent playoff bounce was very, very different than, you know, the sort of the dejected feeling that came with, you know, a last-second Hail Mary fluke play and then uh, an egregious no-call that potentially cost the team the game, which they still would have had some time to play that game out, but very likely the Saints could have won that game and gone on to the Super Bowl the very, you know, in a couple of weeks after that, but we'll never know, right? So that was the biggest thing, was that, like, those two kind of finished in a place that were spectacle and that were unprecedented and were kind of wacky and then all of a sudden you get to this last one which very very just clear and up front the Saints lost that game and it was that simple so it was a little bit different and I do think that the third option you know what happened with the Saints last year is a better scenario for the Saints because you can diagnose that you can fix that you can look specifically at that and say here's where we didn't execute and why and here's what we need to fix. And you saw them do that already so far this offseason. They bring in Emmanuel Sanders to give the offense another weapon when you know Michael Thomas's four defensive backs draped all over him. They bring in uh, Cesar Ruiz so that they can get rid and ship out Larry Warford so that they can you know populate that offensive line, particularly on the interior, with a, str- with a stronger presence. Whether Cesar Ruiz plays at center, they move Eric McCoy to right guard, or Eric McCoy stays at center and they plug in Cesar Ruiz at right guard, that'll be a conversation for a training camp. But they've already started to address all of these positions and, you know, health on the second level on the defense, so on and so forth. So I think that they ended up in a better position in terms of losing that game. Obviously, you wish they would have won it, but in losing that game in the fashion that they did, as opposed to some fluke play or some egregious no-call, it's better off for the Saints because now they can look at it, they, they can diagnose, and they can try to fix it heading into the 2020 season. And I and I agree with you, you know, the Vikings won is the most tame out of all of them, uh, but which one do you think is worse between uh, the Vikings Hail Mary or the egregious uh, no call? I, I go the no call. I, I go the no call. I mean, I just think you look at the game situation as well as what winning that game would have meant. That game, had they won that, they would, you know, that was an NFC Championship game. They would have gone directly to the Super Bowl. So the stakes were higher, the reward was higher. Uh, the other game was a divisional, so they would have gone on to the championship game and potentially still lost and not gone to the Super Bowl. I think that that no call and it also just being something entirely and completely utterly out of your entirely and completely utterly out of your control in that moment is the other part of it um and i think that that is the part that really really sets that one up against the rams as the one that's worse than the minneapolis miracle now here's what i have to ask so drew Brees, he's gonna retire i want to know because there's always a lot of talk about drew Brees, and i feel like he gets a little, you know, swept under the rug and not talked about as much, even though he's put up the gaudy numbers in New Orleans and he's had tremendous success with, with Sean Payton there because he overlapped in an era with 
Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. Uh, so I, I get it, but where, where do you think he compares to kind of those two guys, kind of this era, and, and other guys? I usually put him in the, the top two in terms of those three guys that you just mentioned, in terms of uh, Tom Brady himself and then Peyton Manning. I do put him above Peyton Manning. He beat Peyton Manning. You know, he, he won that Super Bowl up against Peyton Manning. If we're calling Super Bowls quarterback, you know, quarterback stats or whatever, Super Bowl wins quarterback stats, then I think you give Drew Brees that nod. But you also just have to look at his precision, his accuracy, the yardage, the completions, the throwing, the receiving, you know, the, the passing touchdowns. You know, he's been the guy at the helm of a franchise that hasn't drafted a quarterback in the first round for the longest active stretch of any other club in the NFL. There's been no reason for the Saints to ever really doubt that Drew Brees was going to be there. You know, any other time that Drew Brees was either a free agent and was getting offers like in 2018 from the, uh, or 2000, and, yeah, 2018, from the Carolina, I'm sorry, from the Arizona Cardinals, none of that mattered. It, they always knew it was more of a question of when, not if. And maybe the only exception being this this off season where he really seriously contemplated retirement. But you look so far at all the things that he's done, and I put him up there in that top two in that conversation of greatest of all time uh, with Tom Brady. I think getting a second ring would help him. I think that had he gotten uh, that where he awarded an MVP either in 2011 or in 2009, 2013, uh, they were kind of flip flopped in terms of the criteria that year for whatever reason. Had he blocked down one of those, I'd probably have a more convincing argument. But just in terms of what you see in terms of holding, you know, more than 20 major quarterback records, not like the quarterback records that are, you know, most touchdowns thrown on a Sunday afternoon after 4.30 when it's less than 80 degrees outside inside of a dome, like none of those records, but like actual full-on records and statistics. I think that all of that definitely helps to lift him into that conversation. So you think Drew Brees is better than Peyton Manning? I do, yeah. I love it. I love. I love the hot. <laughs> I love. Maybe it's a homer take. Maybe maybe it's a homer take, but it, it's an interesting thing that any time that you have that greatest of all time conversation, you're usually talking about either Tom Brady or uh, or Drew Brees. That's usually the argument as of late, and so it, it is an interesting conversation. But I just think that with everything that you've seen Drew do over this time and his sort of, and, and I think this year will help, right? If he drops off a cliff, much the same as like Peyton Manning did. Uh, then I think you're going to have an argument against Drew Brees for certain. But if he's able to finish out this, which I believe will be his last year, in you know with very good production, continued precision, continued you know high completion percentage, yardage, touchdown to interception ratio, to all of that, then I think that will further that argument and probably make me look a little bit less crazy. <laughs> <laughs> now, who do you think is better right now, Drew Brees or Tom Brady? I think that what you see seen so far over the 2019 season, I would put Drew Brees' 2019 over Tom Brady's 2019. The difference being, of course, that Drew Brees also had five games of rest, essentially. Yes, he had surgery on his throwing hand, don't get me wrong, so it wasn't very restful, but in terms of prolonging his production over the season, I think that that aided Drew Brees, where you saw Tom Brady sort of struggle a little bit more. He was very much sort of the paper-cut approach uh, Tom Brady was in the underneath passes and things like that. But you see that same type of play from uh, from Drew Brees. I think that by their standards, you saw both of them have a pretty down year this year. I'm sorry, last year. Uh, however, Drew Brees performed very, very well in December. It was just that playoff drop-off that I think is always going to taint the 2019 season for him. So it'll be interesting really to watch it over 2020, where they both have so much talent on offense, 
Drew Brees has a lot of talent in New Orleans, but now Tom Brady has a ton of talent to throw to in Tampa Bay and a very good coach still in Bruce Arians. So it'll be really interesting to watch these two guys this year uh, perform against one another in the same division, literally perform head-to-head as early as week one as they open up this season against one another. Uh, but the talent they have surrounding them, I think, is going to aid, could potentially aid both of them in 2020. So I think that this will be a very telling year for both. Ross, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, man, absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. And uh, holler at me anytime, man. And once again, I want to thank Ross Jackson, host of the Locked On Saints podcast, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And also, I do want to get this out of the way because I did not say this in the beginning. And I remember, shout out to my guy Ben Karen, a regular uh, on the podcast, hosts his own podcast, uh, the Sports Squabbler podcast. He is a father now. We've been doing our 20 for 20s, and actually we couldn't uh, do one of it this week because he's like, Daryl, he's like, I'm going to try to, but... My wife might be going into labor any minute. And it turns out six hours before we planned to do on the podcast, his wife went into labor. But congratulations to Ben. I know he's excited to be a dad, so I also want to get that out there. And thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode, the 175th episode of Barbershop Sports Talk.